Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Hi, I'm Jim Pethokoukas from the American Enterprise Institute. I will be moderating today's AEI online discussion, COVID-19 this fall, public health, the economy, and schools. The coronavirus pandemic has affected the world at a magnitude not seen since World War II. In the U.S., we are currently facing a new surge in the spread of COVID, worse than in many other developed countries. This surge exacerbates the challenges we were already facing going into the fall. How will schools operate during the upcoming year? What should policymakers do to minimize the damage the pandemic has done to the economy? And what public health measures do we need to take between now and the discovery of a vaccine? These are all difficult questions, but we have assembled a great panel to discuss all of them. Scott Gottlieb is the former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration. He's also a resident fellow here at AEI. Rick Hess is AEI's Director of Education Policy Studies. He's the author of several books, including Letters to a Young Education Reformer, and Breakthrough Leadership in the Digital Age. Michael Strain is AI's Director of Economic Policy Studies. He's the author of The American Dream is Not Dead, But Populism Could Kill It, released in February of this year. Let's start with you, Rick. How prepared are schools to go fully remote and online this fall? It seems like more and more every day are. Are they ready? Nine of the 15 biggest school systems have said they're going fully remote when school starts. Most of them are not ready little reason to think that anything is going to be much better than it was in the spring. How did it go in the spring? Pretty poorly. The Census Bureau reported that the average student got about 3.8 to 4 hours of instruction a week. Parents reported feeling overwhelmed. 30% of adolescents reported feeling depressed, isolated. We saw huge problems in terms of children's just general well-being. The estimates are that we saw unprecedented fall-offs in terms of reading and math attainment. And that was after students had spent six months in school with their peers and getting to know their teachers. When kids show up for fourth grade or 10th grade this fall, they're going to know their teachers and their teachers are only going to know them, pixels and an email address, leading to some grave concerns about how it's actually going to play out. Here in Northern Virginia, one of the counties, when they announced they were going online, they said, we are, don't worry, parents, we're creating a robust online learning platform. Is that a word for Zoom? Is that just me? Is that just a phrase that needs more Zoom? It would be better if that was a word for Zoom. <laughs> the LA agreement, for instance, that the district and the teachers union struck in the spring expressly barred the district from asking teachers to do Zoom. It prohibited the district from asking teachers to do live instruction. In fact, it barred the district from asking teachers to actually do work during the school day. So that if they found it more conducive to work at three or four hours in the evening, that that passed muster. Uh, Arlington, Virginia, for instance, last spring, explicitly told teachers not to teach any new content because they couldn't figure out how to deliver it universally or uniformly. So yeah, the reality is that a lot of these emails and notes being sent home from schools about their robust, rigorous, highly articulated online presence. Basically, we've got some stuff online, have at it. Before we get to some of the other panelists, just what is your best guess over the course of this year, what share of children will be going to school in person in the United States? 
you know, hugely hard to guess. I mean, I'll be curious to hear what Scott has to say about the, you know, the path of the coronavirus during this year. It looks like we're going to start with, you know, maybe we right now we have really ugly, incomplete numbers. Maybe 20, 30 percent of kids are going to be showing up this fall for at least a hybrid, a part time in person experience, depending on the course, depending on the course things take. You could imagine that being over half of students by spring. You could also imagine it going the other direction. Scott, about, about the path of the virus, just before we uh, started the event, I went and I checked one of the, uh, I guess, more accurate computer models, and it predicted between now and November 1st, another maybe 25 million infected in this country, maybe another 75,000 fatalities. It still seems like it's pretty bad. Is, are those numbers sort of baked in, or is there anything we can do? I think it's really hard to predict beyond really a month on any of these models because there's so much there's so much variability and so many things that are going to happen behavior, behaviorally that are going to impact the epidemic. I think over the next month, what we're likely to see is a slowing in the Sunbelt states. Texas, Arizona are already showing signs of slowing. Florida and, and California will probably show more unmistakable signs of slowing um, in terms of number of new cases, maybe the hospitalizations will start to decline. You're seeing that already in Arizona and Texas, although the reporting on hospitalizations is very spotty right now. Now that HHS has changed the reporting requirements, a lot of states haven't been able to report accurately. But the problem is that you're going to see other states heating up as the sunbelt um, starts to cool down. So similar to what happened with New York, when you looked at the national trends as New York was coming down its epidemic curve, it looked, nas looked like nationally the epidemic was slowing at first and then sort of plateauing at around 20,000 infections a day. But when you backed out New York, New York was such a big initial component of the overall infection in the country that when you backed it out, you actually saw an epidemic that was accelerating around the country, but New York was declining faster than the rest of the country was heating up. And so overall, it looked like there was a flat trend line. I think you're likely to see something similar here where, where we had, we sort of peaked at 70,000 infections, well, maybe come down to you know, 45, 50,000 infections a day as the southern states start to decline. But what you'll see is infections picking up in other parts of the country. And so we'll never really get below 45, 50,000 infections. We'll kind of get down there, touch that bottom, and then make a new high, similar to what happened with the first wave of this epidemic, where we sort of got up to you know, 45,000, 40,000 infections, came down to 20, plateaued there, and then went back up to 60. You know, we'll, we'll make new highs and, and higher lows, if you will, in terms of where we are with the infection. I think that's the risk right now. And when you look around the country, you know, Kentucky has a very big epidemic, obviously a small state, Missouri, Ohio, Illinois, Tennessee, looks like big epidemic underway. Alabama, Louisiana, South Carolina never really got out of it. Obviously, smaller states, their overall contribution is smaller than something like Texas and Florida and California simultaneously. But when you start to add them up, the Midwest looks like it's in trouble. I think people have asked this question, you know, why did we see, you know, as you, as you mentioned, infections, you know, they dropped down, maybe around the 20,000, now they're back up and they're trying to, you know, like, you know, what happened? People have, you know, is it just that we reopened too soon? Was it protests? Whatever the reason was, it sounds like that as long as infections are that high, you're just asking for another outbreak somewhere. It's just, people are just, there's just too many, there's too much virus out there and people are just too mobile. And unless you really tamp down those numbers, it's other flare-ups are just inevitable. I think that's right. I think we just have a lot of infection around the country, and it's inevitable that there's going to be reseeding. As much as some states think that they can create sort of restrictions on travel in and out of state, 
you're never going to really effectively uh, be able to do that. And the states that right now have brought their infection way down are getting reseeded. They just don't know it right now. And those chains of transmission are being lit and some of them will, will end up being outbreaks, you know, within a month or so. You're going to start to see outbreaks emerge in some of the states that have been relatively quiescent, either had good control of this all the way through or got good control of it, like, you know, Connecticut, the state I'm in. Um, so we just have too much infection around this country. And we, we don't really have a, a uniform approach, so you can't simultaneously snuff it out. We have state-led efforts, state policies that are disparate. And so you're having state-led policy efforts with regional effects in this country as opposed to you know, a more consistent approach. And I don't know you're ever going to get to a more consistent approach at this point. I think that this is this some inevitability to um, the situation we're in right now, just from a sort of policy and political and practical standpoint. Mike, those reopenings might have played a role in the virus, you know, sort of popping back up here, but it also helped the economy. It wasn't really the, the reopenings. I mean, people said we reopened too early, and, and, and maybe there's some truth in that, but, it, but I think the issue was more the speed of the reopening and how you reopened. Could have reopened early, mm-hmm. but reopened more deliberately and left certain things shut a longer period of time. And so I, would, I wouldn't say it was the sort of timing of the reopening that we reopened the manner in which we did it yeah exactly and maybe that's sort of baked in when people say well we reopened too early what they really mean is we reopened too quickly but i think we should we should tease that out when we talk about it because it's important from a policy standpoint like should we reopened should we have reopened bars no we shouldn't have we should keep certain indoor congress settings that are purely entertainment closed in perpetuity until we can figure out whether we have control i mean the priority should be trying to open the schools and do other things that are more important from a social standpoint here in connecticut they've kept the casinos closed. They just don't see a practical way to reopen those safely and not have those be a source of spread. And so you can make those decisions. It's hard on the venues that ultimately are objectified and sort of carved out from the general reopening, but you do have to make those decisions. And the things that are the highest risk are indoor congregate settings in confined spaces where you have a lot of mixing. And the ones that probably are the most suspect are the ones that are done, the indoor congregate settings where you have a lot of mixing, where it's done just purely for entertainment purposes of individuals is not really a, a sort of economic benefit that's being derived societally other than to, you know, the business that's operating that space. So when we decided to open the way we did, and so you could say when we decided to open bars, then we then it was sort of automatic that a lot of school districts were going to have some very difficult decisions to make this fall because we are not going to just have, you know, 5,000 cases a day. We are going to have 10 times that. Yeah, look, I think we need to start making those hard choices and looking a month or two down the road about where we think we want to be. And certainly, as I said at the outset, I think you can make predictions sort of a month or six weeks out in terms of how this is going to spread. And so we, we should have been more cautious about how what we reopen to try to get more runway to reopen schools. I mean, here in Connecticut, and again, I, I'm working with the governors, so I'm sort of close to the situation. They should be able to reopen the schools for in-class learning. They'll sort of give a flexible option to parents, but I think that the infection's under control. They may not be able to keep schools open. There may be a point in time where there's outbreaks and the infection picks up at a, at a, point, at a pace that you want to close the schools because you're worried about children being exposed to this on a wide basis. But I think that you'll have that opportunity at the outset. And, you know, the state took a lot of steps and incurred a lot of hardship to sort of uh, earn the right to have that, that optionality. You know, at the end of the day, as important as it is to open schools, I think we do need to be mindful not to let this become epidemic in children because while while I think that the clinical literature that says that this is less of a risk in kids is is right, there's a lot of studies now that sort of affirm that, the information about whether or not kids can be conduits of spread is mixed. There, there's a lot of suggestion that when they do become symptomatic, they, they're, they're less likely to get infected and less likely to become symptomatic, but when they do become symptomatic, they're just as likely to transmit the virus, maybe more so because they compensate in 
behavior, what they sort of lack in biology in terms of their ability to transmit it. So maybe they're less biologically able to transmit it, but their behavior compensates for that. You know, they're more likely to come into contact with adults and you're more likely to hug and kiss your children when they're sick. So, so they can be conduits to spread when they get symptomatic. And in the question of whether or not they develop severe disease, certainly there's not as much evidence that they get, can get as sick as adults and older adults. I mean, certainly the morbidity skews heavily towards older adults. But remember, not a lot of kids have had this. If you look at the CDC's data, and I tweeted this out two days ago, and I, I might get it wrong off the top of my head, but I think they documented 250,000, about 250,000 cases of kids developing symptomatic illness that was diagnosed. Not all of them were symptomatic, but most of them were because kids generally don't get, don't get tested unless they're symptomatic. You have to put that against about 11.8 million kids in 2018, 2019 were projected to have symptomatic flu probably another three, four million at least had asymptomatic flu. And of that 11.8 million, that was a projection, but six point, about 6.5 million actually showed up at the doctor's office and got tested. So whatever way you want to cut it, whether you want to put the 250,000 against the 6.5 million or the 250,000 against the 11.8 million, it's an order of magnitude different in terms of the number of kids who got symptomatic flu and symptomatic COVID. And when you look at the data, there's 76 pediatric fatalities with COVID. That's about the number of pediatric fatalities you see with flu. So people who say, well, this isn't serious in kids and flu is far more serious. Flu claimed, uh, you know, grimly claimed a small number, increment more lives in 2018, 2019 in the pediatric population, but it infected an order of magnitude more kids. I don't think we want to see what it would look like. We, sh we should do everything we can to prevent an outcome where 11.8 million kids develop symptomatic COVID or even 6.5 million kids become symptomatic, develop symptomatic COVID. I think that you will see some uh, morbidity. And just final point on this, the one study, there's not a lot of good studies that look prospectively at the outcomes in kids. The one study that CDC cites and they have it on their website is a study of 2,100 kids in China who developed symptomatic COVID. So they actually developed symptoms, most of them did. And they showed about 5% developed severe disease that, had, that created central hypoxia. They basically needed to be hospitalized and get oxygen. And 0.6% um, developed um, either shock or acute respiratory distress syndrome or multi-organ multi system dysfunction. So they were in the, in the ICU, critically ill. That's a high percentage. I mean, it's not nearly as high as you'd see in adult population, but it's still a high percentage and, and still should give us caution about, again, just making sure we reopen schools with precautions in place that, so that this doesn't become epidemic in children. Mike, I want you to uh, put this uh, school reopenings in an economic context, but before you do, just briefly, how is the economy doing? We had a really bad GDP report today, for, which everyone expected for the second quarter. There's been some talk among economists that the V-shaped economy is recovery is not happening, that the economy is sputtering. How do you see things? Well, the, the economy is in very, very bad shape. Today's GDP report showed that the economy contracted by about one third on an annualized basis in the second quarter. It shows just how deep and how severe the recession was. That represents the worst quarter of economic performance since the U.S. began keeping records in the 1940s. It's, it's surely the worst economic performance we've seen since the Great Depression, and it's, it's devastating. There's, there, there, we've seen nothing like it in our lifetimes. You know, the month that got the most weight in the second quarter GDP statistic is April, and April was was a, a terrible, terrible month. The economy in June was already considerably outperforming the second quarter average. So 
the economy is much better than it was at its at its low point. Uh, you know, the 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 recession probably lasted two months. The recession is probably over, but so much damage was inflicted in the months of March and April that even though we climbed quite a bit quite quickly in the months of May and June, we're still in a very deep hole. And so, you know, we're going to enter into a period this summer. We're going to continue to see rapid improvement, but it's going to take months and months and months and months and months of sustained rapid improvement until we're finally back to where we were in February. Is there much risk of slipping back into a recession? Certainly some economists, including the folks at Moody's, have talked about that. I mean, there's 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 some risk of of slipping back into a recession. You know, I think there's real risk of stepping of of, of having a you know two or three step forward, one step back type economy. You know that that doesn't get you a recession, but it does slow the rate of progress. I mean, I think you know my my view at this point is that we're going to have really rapid growth in the third quarter of the year, uh, July, August, and September. Um, that we're going to have solid growth in the fourth quarter of the year, and then we're going to end calendar year 2020 in a m- much better place than we were in in the second quarter. But given how bad the second quarter was, even if the second half of the year goes really, really well, it's inconceivable to me that the economy at the end of 2020 won't be in much worse shape than the economy was at the end of 2019. How much of that you know, relatively upbeat forecast for the second half of the year is dependent on what happens in Congress with this uh, phase four support and stimulus package? It sounds like a relatively upbeat forecast, um, but really what, what drives that forecast is just how bad the economy was in March and April. You know, all of these, all of these quarterly growth rates are, are relative. And so, and so progress in the third quarter is measured relative to the second quarter. And it doesn't take much for the economy to improve relative to the second quarter, given how bad the second quarter was. So uh, while I do think we will see significant improvement in the second half of 2020 over the next you know, six months or so, that shouldn't be confused for a statement that we won't, we won't still be in terrible shape. I mean, we're going to be in bad, bad shape for quite some time. If you look at where we were in June and assume we have no economic improvement in July, August, and September relative to where we were in June, we're still going to see significant growth in the third quarter relative to the second quarter. So as long as we don't actually slide backward in a sustained way where we were in June, we're going to have a good, a good summer and we're going to go into the fall in good shape. You know, if Congress does even the bare minimum, which I expect they will, that will still be true. Having said that, we really need another uh, significant piece of economic recovery legislation in order to have the kind of recovery that we should be having from, uh, from where we were in the spring with the lockdowns. What is the trade-off of having kids not go to school in person? What is the economic trade-off both as far as the, li- the lifetime impact on those kids, as well as the impact on their, their parents as workers? Well, I think it's really significant. And I, and, and, and I think, I think as, a, as a society, we haven't uh, really given this enough weight. I mean, I've been, I've been surprised and disappointed 
uh, at the extent to which the conversation around schools really schools as if they're just daycare centers or or as if they're some sort of a weird credentialing institution that doesn't actually do anything in terms of in terms of kids intellectual skill or social and emotional development you know if if the schools don't open in september it's hard to understand why they would open in january and so if we're talking about a year of virtual learning, which is really, I think the school districts that are deciding not to open in September are effectively deciding to be closed for the entire academic year. You know, that's, that's a significant loss for those students. You know, kind of conventional economic uh, estimates suggest that an additional year of schooling increases your wages as an adult by 9% per year. When you factor in that there was virtual learning taking place in the spring, you know, you're, you're talking about lowering the wages of these kids once these kids reach adulthood by double digits, by 10%, 12%, something like that. Again, according to conventional economic estimates, that's going to hit lower income kids the hardest. Lower income kids are going to see uh, earning wage and income losses that are greater than that, than that average estimate. And that's really significant. That's a significant, significant cost to those kids. It's also a, a major cost to the longer term performance of the economy as a whole. And that's to say nothing of what the impact is of, of having schools closed on the economy today by, by making it so hard for parents to go to work. We really, I think, should be uh, closing schools as a, as a last resort. If we, if we look back on, on this episode and we see that we let bars and tattoo parlors stay open but we didn't let kids go to school, then as a society, we will have failed to deal with this crisis in a very fundamental and profound way. Right now, the Washington DC public schools, as of, as of this morning, I believe, are planning to go to school uh, to, to, to do only virtual learning. At the same time, you can still eat indoors at a restaurant. And this just represents a, a a complete misordering of what society's priorities should be. Yeah, I want Rick to jump in and then Scott. Yeah, I mean, I think first off, that is elegantly said, Mike, part of what's going on here is that the most uh, vocal and influential interests in education uh, have been saying, hey, let's put our thumb on the scale of not opening. So the teacher unions, for instance, have said, look, we, we want schools to reopen as long as they're safe, but that's gonna cost hundreds of billions. It's going to require extraordinary efforts. If there is any doubt in how we weigh this out, let's not open. Uh, you've heard the same thing from superintendents associations. Parents themselves are justifiably nervous. So I think one of the things that's happened in the calculation around schools, which has not happened with commercial enterprises, is we have had a lot of active vocal interests raising all of the legitimate concerns. And there's really not been any visible or organized or forceful push to say, well, wait a minute, we need to think about what it means for kids to not be in school. So that's, that's part of that. And that's part of when we think about what's going to change in the decision process in December or in March, it's, uh, it's not clear how that is going to evolve. Look, the, the thing to keep in mind about virtual schooling is, in theory, it makes a heck of a lot of sense, especially as students get older, the opportunity for them uh, to connect with expertise and with mentors who aren't just the adult in their high school, 
the ability to access, read, all of this stuff makes a lot of sense in theory. Problem is, it turns out to be really hard to design virtual education well under any circumstances. Most of what districts were offering in the spring and will be rolling out in the fall is duct tape stuck together, whatever they can get their hands on with faculty who don't know what they're doing, operating under collective bargaining agreements that are highly restrictive in the things you need to do to make this work. And turns out that a, while virtual learning environments work really well for some learners, for lots of students, especially young students, it's the human dimension of schooling that makes it all work. Uh, they go to school and they kind of sit in class because they like to see their friends, because they like their teacher, because of all of the other tissue that's wound up, that, that, that's wrapped into schools. So a real simple example of this is about a decade ago, there was an explosion in higher education of these things called MOOCs. They were offered by faculty at places like Stanford and MIT. They were free online courses where you got to watch the video and take it. This is adult learners who are choosing voluntarily to take these courses. Tens of thousands of people signed up for some of the courses taught by the leading authority in the entire world. Generally speaking, when Harvard did an evaluation of its MOOCs, about 5% of students actually completed the courses. So even for motivated, interested adult learners, the rate at which people are actually able to lock in and benefit from virtual learning is quite limited and hugely dependent on design. Now we are asking schools in a helter-skelter fashion to do this for tens of millions of kids with teachers who aren't actually trained in it and may not be comfortable. I think when we think about the educational implications for all of that happy, uh, happy talk that folks are gonna get from their local superintendents and their local teachers, I think they should be very concerned about how this plays out in practice. When you're talking about groups pushing for online schooling, keep the schools at least partially closed, where is that potential counterweight, which we have not heard from, going to come from? Is it, is it a, just a organic parents uprising? Is it just politicians taking the lead? Who, where, 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 where does that energy emerge from? It's, it's a great question. I mean, you know, President Trump obviously saw his posters, presumably saw an opening here in July when he suddenly started demanding that we send kids back to school. But in classic Trump fashion, he did this in a reckless, unhinged way with, and was openly dismissive of the health concerns uh, in a way presenting the folks nervous about going back to school with the perfect foil. Um, you've seen relatively few polls stand up. Uh, Governor Polis in Colorado, I think handled this real nicely talking very deliberately in a disciplined fashion about, look, uh, we can't be scared out of doing what we need to do for kids, but we have to be cognizant of all the risks. We've seen very little of that kind of political leadership. Parents themselves are deeply split. Depending how you ask the question, it's really 50-50 between parents who want to send their kids back to school and parents who absolutely don't want to send their kids back to school. So you haven't seen a lot of energy there. The advocacy and reform community is right now very caught up in questions of social justice, which turn out to play out very weirdly on this. On the one hand, as Mike mentioned, the kids who are suffering most from this are the kids who are in homes where they don't have highly educated parents, where you don't have a lot of resources uh, to pay for supplemental materials, uh, that are in small homes without good learning space. These are exactly the kids on the wrong side of the opportunity gaps. But these are also parents who, in many cases, most nervous about sending the kids to school. So the reformers and the advocates are on the sidelines. 
And then you've got a mass culture. You have these pods emerging, especially in affluent, wealthy communities where parents are getting together and figuring out how to pay money to hire tutors to get their kids together. But instead of this being greeted as American ingenuity and parents being eager to stand up and find a way for their kids, what you're generally seeing in the New York Times and the NPRs is these parents lambasted as selfish examples of everything that's wrong with privileged culture. So it's right now really hard to see where that leading edge on making sure we're being fully cognizant of what kids need is going to come from. Terrific, made a lot of good points. I, I think that the issue of who's pushing back on trying to get schools open, I think you're seeing, first of all, I think you're seeing a lot of parents want schools to reopen in some fashion. I think parents are appropriately nervous about the risk of outbreaks and epidemics in the school. And I think they should be nervous about that. But I think you are seeing some organized effort among the political class, certain elements of the political class, and that was touched on, to try to get schools reopened for a variety of reasons. I think it was done, I think that push was not done in a thoughtful fashion. And I think it, it, it sort of stoked the kinds of anxieties that people I think legitimately should have, which is how are we gonna prevent uh, outbreaks and epidemics in the school? Because the reality is when we reopen schools, uh, when we push to reopen schools, we should do it with the goal first and foremost to prevent outbreaks in the schools and prevent kids from getting infected. Um, you know, and that and and prevent teachers from getting infected. And the two goals aren't uh, in conflict with each other. I think that there's a lot you can do to create a safer environment in the school for children, even in the setting of some spread in the community. First of all, you've got to get the major epidemics under control. It's going to be hard to open schools against the backdrop of uncontrolled spread. But you know, you could you keep the students in defined cohorts. You retrofit the HVAC systems. You try to move classes outdoors where you can. You open windows rather than run the air conditioning systems. You can have students wear masks. You certainly give proper PPE to the teachers. You can stagger the start time of the school day. You can go to hybrid models and have uh, in-class and, and online learning um, to try to create more um, distance within the school. There's a lot of things you can do to create a safer environment in the school. And, you know, the, the, the dialogue was we have to reopen schools for five days a week, mandated indoor learning, nine to five, no hybrid model, grin and bear it. And that's, that was the wrong approach and I think the wrong message. And when you have the specter of CDC putting out guidance on how to safely reopen schools and they do, you know, gymnastics to avoid having to make mention of what you would do to actually close the schools if the situation arose, that also doesn't inspire confidence. And if you read that CDC guidance, it, it, there's no mention of the circumstances under which you might consider closing the schools, how you would close the schools, what the threshold would be. The document literally says that in a setting of uncontrolled um, community spread of the virus or situations where the school is the source of the local epidemic, the school itself is a source of the local epidemic, it says in those circumstances, you should have a discussion about whether you might consider closing the schools. That's all, I, I'm not quite quoting the document. But I think we've got to address these issues and the absence of addressing them actually is going to push more districts over the edge of closing their schools because of the uncertainty around it um, and the concerns. And so I think if we sort of took these issues head on, we, we acknowledge the fact that, you know, there, there needs to be measures in place to protect the children, that some element of, of hybrid approaches may be appropriate in certain communities. And we need to more clearly define circumstances under which you might consider closing the schools. I think we'd have a more confident uh, you know, environment in which school districts would take the risk of going forward rather than the default position would be to close them because of the, the pervasive uncertainty. It's just an interesting piece. I, I think Scott's right. I agree. 
you know, John Bailey and I rallied about two dozen former superintendents and state chiefs and Obama, Bush office holders to sketch a framework for thinking about these issues back in early May. And one of the things that was frustrating through May and June is rather than seeing a really disciplined effort in the education space to start figuring out how to do the things Scott was talking about, it frequently felt like we were playing a version of the Washington Monument strategy that you had superintendents in Los Angeles and San Francisco and San Diego signing letters saying, look, we can't really figure out how to reopen until we get a promise of 200 billion in federal aid for schools. And so what you saw was a huge amount of energy it felt like invested, not in saying, how do we make this work two days a week right now, but in saying, well, we don't wanna get ahead of ourselves until the checks start showing up. So for instance, Scott mentioned the possibility of starting school earlier. We've talked over the last several months about running split school shifts. You run a nine to noon, so kids get time with the teacher, you clean the building for a couple hours, you run a two to five. You run six days a week, so that's Saturday, so you can space. So there's a lot of this. But what one of the things that's happened is districts have been loath to ask employees to actually modify the terms of their collective bargaining agreements. And you've seen little indication from the teacher associations that they're open to even temporarily creating MOUs around any of the existing uh, any existing provisions. In fact, what you've seen, for instance, was the Democratic Socialists of America, along with the Boston teachers, the LA teachers, the Chicago teachers, the Milwaukee teachers, the St. Paul teachers, the Oakland teachers, have now formed a coalition which says that, look, if we want to reopen schools, we need to raise taxes on the rich, we need to have a moratorium on evictions, we need to stop uh, charter schools and standardized testing. So one of the things that's happened is the whole question of trying to figure out how to reopen schools or even create virtual flexible learning that really works for families, uh, flexible virtual learning, has in many cases in the education space gotten caught up, caught up with regular wish list agendas and power politics that have, that, that, that have shifted the ball entirely from kind of the practical problem solving that Scott was sketching. Scott, you mentioned a number of things that could be done to make going to school in person safer. I, I'm not sure if you mentioned having the kids wear masks. I'm not sure yeah. maybe you can mention everything that, but if you did all those things and maybe wear masks, would you be comfortable having schools open? They did all those things, but the level outbreak was what we see right now in Florida and Texas and Arizona and Georgia and California. You know, pretty, pretty substantial. I think that these decisions should be made by local districts because every local district faces a different circumstance in terms of what it can do with respect to the measures I talked about. And unfortunately, a lot of districts that are already disadvantaged have the least opportunity to implement some of the measures. And so you have students that already face disadvantages in getting access to education, being the ones who are in a position where their districts can open. So we need to, we need to try to address that. But I do think we need to leave discretion to the districts. And that's not what's happening. You're seeing states step in and saying, you're opening five days a week, you know, for in-class learning, regardless. In states that have major epidemics underway, so if you took California right now, Southern California right now, Florida right now, parts of Texas right now, I've said all along, I think it's going to be very hard to open against the backdrop of an out-of-control epidemic. I don't see, I don't think the measures that I outlined can feasibly prevent outbreaks from happening in the schools. And so you can be one of those who says, well, you know, there's been outbreaks in schools, kids will be, be fine, they can get sick, it won't, won't worsen the epidemic, and the kids won't have bad outcomes. I'm not in that camp. I think that if there's outbreaks in schools, 
It's going to seed the community and the kids are going to be at risk. I don't want to see outbreaks in schools. And I don't think that you can prevent that in the setting of major epidemics. I think in states that have a measure of control over their spread, and you don't have to have perfect control over your spread, but a measure of control over your spread so you don't have sustained community transmission, I think there you can open the schools against the backdrop of some transmission. We're never going to get transmission down to exceedingly low levels like you've seen in some other countries where you have you know, a handful of cases being reported a day. I mean, even New York has 500 cases a day. You know, Connecticut still has 100 cases a day, and it's going to probably go up. Um, but in those states, I think that there's an opportunity to open the schools. In states that you know, are challenged but not out of control, I think there's an opportunity to open the schools. I think in the states where you see an out-of-control epidemic, you see a positivity rate, you know, above 10, those are going to be very difficult circumstances. Um, you know, and even a positivity rate above five is challenging, but there's about, you know, probably 15 states right now with a positivity rate above 10. Uh, and that, those, are, those are challenging circumstances for those states. Mike, do you think that even in those kinds of situations, we have high positivity rates, a lot of spread. Do you think that the economic downsides are so significant that even those situations, you, schools need to reopen, get the kids some masks, open windows, you know, have class outside, but, but it's such an overwhelming case about the potential damage. And, and maybe Rick can also toss at some point when those kids could ever catch up that we just need to get those schools, we need to get our schools open. Yeah, I think I, I think I am uh, would be willing to tolerate a greater degree of risk and and a greater degree of, of infection uh, than that it sounds like like Scott would. I mean, I think there are certainly situations where you know he's 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 going to jump to the Zoom. Uh, I think there are certainly situations. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm, I'm absorbing the medical device. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how much infection See, is the point that I, the point that we need the public health community to understand is that there are considerations that just medical advice at play here. Um, but you know, I think I, I, I think we need uh, I, I think we need to, to to think of that as as really an extreme thing to do. Uh, shutting down schools for a year after they were already closed for the spring semester that's a that's a very serious thing to do. But, you know, I, I I don't think we should be having that conversation in isolation. I mean, you know, we should all be wearing masks every day when we leave our houses. And we should be doing that because doing that would help get kids back in the classrooms. We should be, uh, when, when, when we're deciding whether or not bars and tattoo parlors should be open, we should be thinking about the effect that will have on, on allowing kids to go into classrooms. Shutting down schools should be one of the very last things that we shut down. Uh, and, and, and we certainly shouldn't be shutting down schools because we don't want to issue orders about wearing masks in public. Um, you know, so, so I think it's, you know, I, I think a lot of people are asking, you know, how much infection would you tolerate? How much spread would you tolerate in order to keep the schools open? You know, it's. It, I, I think that is a useful question because that trade-off, the trade-off between more infection and a more normal uh, uh, life, is a trade-off that we should be grappling with more explicitly than we currently are. The reason not to frame the question in that way is because these options don't exist in a vacuum. There are a whole bunch of other things that we can and should be doing that would both reduce the spread of the virus and allow kids to go back into classrooms. Um, and, I, and I do think a root cause of the, 
the um, uh, uh, challenge here is is a lack of appreciation for the real value that schools have for kids. It, 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 when your kid is in sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth grade, school is not just daycare. You know, it's not just a mechanism to allow you to go to work. I mean, it is it is it is really doing something for your ability to function in society as an adult and and to function in the economy as an adult. And I'll I'll just say, Jim, that. Look, if I was a, if I was in Florida, as a parent, I wouldn't want the schools open. It seems, you know, when you look, think about frameworks and you think about conditions, it's, you know, it, it's the scaffolding Scott's talking about. So, look, there's got to be a continuum here. But I think there's lots of places. Talk about Northern Virginia a couple moments ago, where we both live. It seems to me that the public health and the public health situation in Northern Virginia is such that it should be entirely feasible to open schools in a hybrid fashion. And whether or not kids go five days a week is one question. I think it's vital to understand, though, how hugely important it is for kids to get into school buildings on a semi-regular basis, whether that's two days a week, and that makes it feasible to socially distance and to have time to deep clean, whether that's half days. Look, the thing we've got to remember is that for huge numbers of children, especially, you know, millions of kids who are on the wrong side of the opportunity gaps, this is, the, this is where they have stable adults in their lives. This is where they have uh, friendship networks. It's the human piece that actually connects them to what they're learning. They actually need to know who their teacher is, is something other than an occasional, um, you know, square on a Zoom screen. To ask kids to show up for school and spend the fall semester or an entire year as eight-year-olds or 14-year-olds learning from somebody whom they have never actually interacted with in person is I think to be profoundly unrealistic about how kids learn and how teachers do their job. And I work on the question, can, can kids catch up? We have this phenomenon called a uh, summer learning note. Uh, one of the big reasons, uh, we talk about this a lot in the early No Child Left Behind years, one of the reasons that you see these huge gaps by race or by uh, income is that kids tend to rest during the academic year there's less spread than you would imagine. But what happens typically during the summer is kids from middle class and affluent families uh, hold uh, or increase uh, their performance because they get to go to enrichment opportunities and they have resources. And kids from low income uh, families are stuck in smaller homes without enrichment opportunities and they go down. So basically what you've done is you've now created that phenomenon for six months, potentially for 15 months. Uh, what we are talking about is a massive lift to try to get the kids who are losing out here back where they need to be. Can it be done? Hypothetically, sure. With enough intensive tutoring, enough supports, um, are we able, are we willing to fund that? Are we able to figure out how to deliver it? It's an open question. Scott, why, why are we sitting here uh, with 65, 70,000 still cases a day? We're a rich country. We have an advanced medical system. We have great biotech companies. States are relatively well run. Why are we still sitting here with 60,000 plus cases a day while, while Western Europe are opening schools? They have, what, 5,000 cases a day? What explains that gap to, to the best of your knowledge? Yeah, I think that the centralized nature of our country uh, in terms of how decisions get made at a state level and a local level rather than a federal level, I think the individualism of this nation, our aversion to regulation, at least among those on this call, 
you know, while those all those elements were normally the uh, ingredients of the dynamism of this this nation, uh, I think it's worked against us in this setting. I think that you know we weren't able to implement a coordinated strategy, we weren't able to get uh, uniform adherence to it. Our individualism caused splits over things like wearing of masks, where there should have been, I think, more collective acceptance and collective action. So all the things that make this nation great, I think, and make us dynamic also make it hard to respond to a public health crisis in a intensive, coordinated fashion. Scott, do you, th do you think we should have mask mandates everywhere and, and people who violate them should be fined? There was, was an op-ed in the Washington Post today calling for that exact thing. There are mask mandates, but there's really very little downside other than public scorn for not wearing a mask. Should people be fined or even jailed? Well, I, I think it's reasonable to, I think we should be implementing a mask mandate. I think there needs to be enforcement. You can give people a warning and then give them a fine. Look, we require people to wear seatbelts and we give them tickets. And if they don't have a seatbelt on, we enforce that. And that's largely to protect them and lower insurance premiums. It's you, you wearing a seatbelt isn't necessarily protecting other people from you. This is a situation where you're not only protecting yourself, you're providing a protection to a society as a whole. I don't know why we can in, uh, mandate and enforce seatbelt requirements and, and people comply with it um, largely, uh, but they, there's this sort of political aversion to the masks other than for the fact that the masks got sort of pitched in a political context from the outset, unfortunately, and got equated with people's exercise of their liberty. And it's uncomfortable to wear a mask. So I understand people not wanting to be told they have to wear a mask when it's 95 degrees in Phoenix, but you know, the masks should be uh, enforced in the settings in which the masks provide protection, indoor congregate settings. You know, if you're walking on the street and you're, you're distanced from everyone, that's not a setting where you necessarily need to enforce a mask mandate. Inside, yeah, absolutely. I, I'll just say, Jimmy, I'm talking to a lot of CEOs and I think you're gonna see more of a, a mask mandate in the country driven by the private sector um, as more and more businesses require masks inside their establishments. It effectively requires people to have a mask when they go out of their home and put it on largely in the highest risk settings, which is when you're in an indoor congregate space. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.